Okay, so let's uh, go ahead and open in a word of prayer. Father, thanks for a gorgeous morning out and for bringing us safely here to study your word. I pray that you grant us insight now into this text. Thank you for giving us the grand picture of how things are going to turn out so that we can rest assured that you're in charge of all things and nothing's going to happen apart from your sovereign allowance. Thank you that we love you, that you've chosen us and thank you that uh, we know you as our Lord and Savior and just thank you for, again for this time that we have to study in Christ's name. Amen. We're looking at, um, going to be looking in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9 is probably one of the most important um, chapters in the Bible having to do with end time timing, not, not exactly timing as a when, but the basic plan of how it's all going to work out. Some have called it the backbone of biblical prophecy, giving structure to everything else that goes around it. Um, it's referred to by Matthew in Matthew chapter 24 and 25 when Christ is given the Olivet Discourse. Christ refers back to this passage. So this is sort of the framework of biblical prophecy when it comes to what is going to happen. So it's very important that we understand what it is. It's, it's probably one of the most important prophecies in the whole Bible. Again, having to do with just the basic outline of what's going to happen. Now again, um, remember God has not given us gory detail, has he? But he has given us the grand picture. He's given us the end view. He tells us generally what is going on, but he's not given us specifically what's going on. We're not given that. What does this do? What's this prophecy do? Well, it gives a panoramic view of the whole of biblical prophecy. Um, it goes up to 20,000 feet and basically gives you the history of humanity from 20,000 feet. You basically see the grand picture, all the way from the time of Daniel, all the way through the millennial kingdom. It concerns both the first and second advents of Christ. It's talking about both advents, the first coming and the second coming. And it gives an endpoint of the times of the Gentiles. This is a concept we're going to bring up again and again here, the times of the Gentiles. What is that? That's the break in the calendar, so to speak, of God's prophetic calendar. So we're going to talk about that. So let's look at this. When you look at Daniel 9, and if you all turn there, we'll start working our way down through the passage. But uh, we're going to outline it by the following four or five points, the sevens, the scope, the start, the suspension, and the settlement. So let's look at Daniel chapter 9. By the way, the first part of Daniel 9 is a great example of prayer in the Bible. In fact, it's one of the greatest prayers in the Bible. And in Daniel chapter 9, you read, In the first year of Darius the son of Ahasuerus by descent of Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. When was this? Well, this was about 536 B.C., give or take. Um, the Babylonian nation was conquered by the Medo-Persians. And Cyrus the Great was reigning king, and he made this man Darius the sub-king over Babylon. And this is the first year of his reign, so it's about 536 B.C. And um, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Where did he get this? Jeremiah chapter 26. No, 29. Jeremiah 29. In Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah is given a prophecy and God tells him that 70 years, you're going to be in captivity 70 years. Israel's going to be in captivity for 70 years. Why 70 years? Well, that is the number of years of jubilee, not jubilee, but of the, the fallow of the ground. 490 years, Israel had defiled the seven-year seven rest period for the ground. So God says, I'm going to give the ground 70 years of rest and I'm going to put you in a captivity for 70 years. Now, Daniel here is in 536 B.C. What does he know, probably? What do you think he knows? Well, how long has he been in captivity? When did he go into captivity? 606. So do the math. 70 years. He read in the book of Jeremiah that Israel was going to be in captivity 70 years. 
and he remembers, wait a minute, I've been here about 69 plus years, so what's he know? The time is coming soon when Israel is going to go back to the land. So what does that prompt him to do? Pray. And that's what you see in the first part of Daniel 9. Daniel is praying. And why is he praying? This is a good lesson on prayer. I don't, we're not going to go through a whole lesson on prayer, but why would he pray? He, God says, okay, in 70 years you're going back, 70 years is coming up, so why is he now praying that God would send his people back to the land if he knows that's what God's going to do? Follow? We're not ready to go back yet. We need to prepare our hearts. We need to... Is God going to send us back? Sure he is. But we need to get on the program, right? Mm -hmm. And what you don't see here is you don't see a fatalistic approach to prayer. You know, we're sort of like, okay, God's going to do it so I don't have to do anything. I'm just going to go along for the ride. Daniel wanted to be an active participant in this. And Daniel knew that Israel as a nation was not quite ready to go back because he talks about their need to be forgiven. He talks about their sins. You know, we sinned. We did this. We deserve it. And, and what you see in this, this prayer of Daniel's here is you see him saying, God, the reason we're in captivity, the reason we're sent there, it's not because of you. It's not your fault. It's our fault. We sinned. We did wickedly. We disobeyed your prophets. We, we ignored your words. It's our fault we're here. Now, please send us back with your blessing. The Lord's given them time in the 70 years to uh, think about what they did, their sin, right. and ask forgiveness. Sort of like a seven, think about a 70-year time out. Yeah. God gave them a 70-year time out to think through these things. Now, did some people think through them? sure but a lot of them didn't a lot of them didn't get the message and that's what Daniel is praying for and and you see that in the first 19 verses we're not going to go through that but in the first 19 verses that's basically what he's praying and really what he's doing is he's letting God off the hook in the sense that he's saying God it's not your fault we're in captivity you're only doing what you said you were going to do the reason we're here is because of our fault. We did it. We're to blame. Mm -hmm. Not you. And then verse 20 said, While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel. Why is he confessing his sin and the sin of his people Israel? He's uh, asking the Lord uh, to forgive him and then asking for forgiveness for the people. Now, like he's inter what one thing do you know about Daniel? He's a praying man, but does he have any recorded sin? No. Neither did Joseph. There's not many of those. I just like your name in the Bible. I think I'll pass that one. But Daniel's one of those rare people that there's nothing in the Bible negatively recorded about him. Didn't say Daniel was a godly man, but, you know, they had that one little thing he did. Daniel was probably one of the most godly people that ever lived. And yet, what did he see himself as? Sinner. And not only that, but he identified with the people of Israel, the people of God. One of the things, and, I don't, and this is another side detour we can get on, but one of our problems in, in Christianity today is we see ourselves as lone individual Christians. It's just me. And we don't see ourselves as part of a community of Christians. And we don't see the fact that when I sin and when I fall into iniquity, when I do bad things, who does it affect? Just me? It affects all of us. There's a community part of that. Look at Achan. When he sinned, who got affected? Well, his whole family didn't have a very good day. But who else got affected? Well, the whole nation was affected. And there were men that died in battle because he sinned. There's a corporate concept here. And Daniel's identifying himself with the people of Israel. He said, we need to be ready to go back. No, 
That's what he's doing. He's identifying himself with the people of Israel. We, as an Israelite nation, we have sinned. We have done iniquity. We've ignored your words. It's not your fault we're in the woodshed, quite honestly, God. It's our fault. We did it. And you say, well, Daniel, you didn't personally do it. Well, no, he didn't, but he's part of what? The community. And there's a community concept here that I think what we have done is we, we have obliterated in our modern society. Now, it is true that all of us are individually responsible for our sin. But when we come together as a community, like in this church, and one of us commits sin, it affects everybody. It affects everybody around us. It affects the testimony of our church in our community. It makes God look bad. And you say, well, it's just me. No, it's not just you. You affect everybody. And Daniel's identifying himself with the people of God. And it says here, while he was praying and giving his plea, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, Oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Now, none of us have had this happen. When Daniel began to pray, what happened? What did God do? God sent Gabriel to go to Daniel and give Daniel a message. Now, I've not had that happen. Some people on TV said they did, but don't listen to them. Daniel had actually Gabriel show up. Now, who is Gabriel? Gabriel appears to be the messenger angel. When God needs to give a message or when God wants to reveal something, God sends Gabriel along to tell them whoever it is that he wants to, uh, to give the message to. And Gabriel shows up. Gabriel said, I was flying swiftly to come to you and to give you understanding. Okay, so in context, what has Daniel just been reading? The prophecy in Jeremiah. That prophecy in Jeremiah of 70 years prompted him to do what? To pray, to confess his sin. In response to that, God sends Gabriel to give him a message and the message is in verse 24, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. 70 weeks. Now, when we look at that, we think 70 weeks. Okay, that's seven days. In actual Hebrew, it's 77s. The word there for weeks is seven. There's, now, what has he just been reading about? 70 years. Now he's told there's 77s. All right, so just at a 20,000-foot level, what do you think God is saying about the sevens? What are they? Years. Years, most likely they're years. I mean, it fits the context, right? Mm -hmm. And in actuality, if you do a little bit of research, you find that the 77s there, days and months and weeks don't make any sense. Years do. Years make sense. And you can make the case for this. And it says, uh, the, again, the word for weeks there is the Hebrew word for sevens. So you've got to say, okay, 77s, what's, what's he talking about? What's the context? The context of the passage would be years. And then when you look at the prophecy itself, it's split up into two pieces. There's a 69 set of sevens, 69 sevens, and one seven left. All right, so let's read on. There are 77s determined upon your people. Now here's some more information as to why we would say they're weeks, or I mean years. In Daniel 7.25 we read of a time, time, and the dividing of a time. What's that? Three and a half. By the way, Hebrew has this concept called dual number. We have one and many. They had one, two, and many. All right, so the dual number is used here, so you know it's two. So you have one plus two, and then a half is three and a half of something. All right? Three and a half of something. Because it says he's given authority for time, time, and half of times. In Daniel 12, 7, we read of a period of 1260 days during which the Antichrist will scatter the people of God. All right, 1260 days divided by three and a half is what? 
360. 360. All right. And what you find is, the, is in the Bible, the prophetic year is 360 days. Always. All right. So what do we got? We got a, we got a correlation between days and years now. And then if you go over to Revelation 11.2, we read that the temple will be trodden down 42 months. How long is 42 months? Three and a half years. So I've got 1,260 days equals 42 months equals time, time, and half a times. So therefore, the week must refer to what? Years. All right. This is not rocket science. This is just comparing Scripture with Scripture, looking at the context to determine what's the best understanding of sevens. It's years. Follow? You don't follow? Okay. We got 77, so the question is sevens of what? We're trying to find out what is that seven? Pardon? Yeah. There are 70 sevens determined. Yeah, it just, it's, it's weeks means seven. So in Hebrew it says 77s are determined. All right, sevens of what? Okay, is, and, and evidently it's a time period, right? Because he's talking about duration. So there's 77s of years, months, days, something, okay? So the question is, okay, can we narrow it down? What is the 77s? Is it a year? Is it a month? Is it a day? What is it? So, let's, so when we look at the usage of these concept of seven. We got this number seven. And then we start looking at other passages in scripture. All right. What we find is that in this, what we call the tribulation time, Antichrist is given power for three and a half of something. Time, time, and half of times. Three and a half of something. In Revelation, it says he has power to trod down the city 42 months. So it's 42 months. Three and a half years. Right? That's how long 42 months is. Going back to Daniel 12, we find that the Antichrist is given power for 1260 days. So now we know that 1260 equals 40, 1260 days equals 42 months. Follow? And all these passages is talking about the Antichrist and his... his um, his devastation of Israel. And it uses three different time periods. It uses three and a, time, time and half a times in one passage. It uses 1260 days in another. And he uses 42 months in another. All referring to the same time period. Follow? Okay. So what we have to do... Now you got it? All right, I was going to multiply it out on the board. Okay, good. It's a little confusing. And, and the way you do that is, is, is each of these passages is talking about the same event, Antichrist trotting down in Jerusalem for a period of time. 1260 days, 42 months, time, time, and half a times. How do we know the same language was used in Daniel as You don't. Well, you, you compare, this is, where, this is where you compare Scripture with Scripture. It's talking about a time period. Now, if you're just looking at Daniel, we know that three and a half equals 1,260 days. So we don't need the 42 months. That's just icing on the cake. All right? We don't need Revelation to interpret Daniel. Remember we said, you, when Daniel wrote this, you could read Daniel and could barely, you could fairly understand what's going on. Now, you didn't understand the implications of that, right? Because Daniel didn't understand all the implications. But you could make sense of what was being said. There's this antichrist that's going to devastate Israel for a period of time, times, and half a time, or 1,260 days. Do the math. You got your, yeah, it's the same period of time. All right. So what we got is we got 490 years we got to deal with. 490 years. 77s. Okay, so 70 times 7 is 490, so we have 490 years that God is telling Daniel is determined on the Israelite nation. That's God's calendar. Now, you've got to think of this, okay, 
think of this at, as the sports clock and a football game. What do you know about the sports clock in a football game? All the time. You know, they spend three, you know, two hours playing the first 55 minutes and an hour playing the last five. All right? That's the way it operates. Now, it's not quite as bad with God's clock, but his clock can stop and then pick up. Now, how long does a football game last? Four quarters. Four quarters. How long, how long does it last, time-wise? 60 minutes. How long do you wind up watching the doggone thing? Three hours. Three hours. Why? Stop, stop, you know, all the stopping, okay? The same concept applies here, or you don't watch it at all. The same concept applies here, all right? There is a, a stop. Yeah, God says, in 490 years total, I'm going to wrap everything up. What's he going to wrap up? Well, to finish the transgression. To finish the transgression. This is what the 490 years are going to accomplish. When they're done, I'm going to finish the transgression. Literally means to restrain firmly the transgression. The idea there underneath it is sin will one day be fully and ultimately restrained. God says... I'm going to take 490 years to put an end to sin, to transgression. Now, in, in context, what would that transgression be? What, what transgression was Daniel looking at in specific? Why did they go into bondage? Because of their idolatry, right? Their disobedience. So God says, in 490 years, I'm going to take care of the whole idolatry business. I'm going to restrain firmly the transgression. And I think the transgression there, you say, well, what transgression is he talking about? Well, what transgression put them in the mess that they were in? It was their idolatry and disobedience and rebellion. And God says, I'm going to take 490 years. I'm going to finish that. I'm going to, whatever I do, I'm going to firmly get rid of that. I'm going to, I'm going to solve that problem. And then to make an end of sins... I'm going to finish the transgression. I'm going to make an end of sins. means to finally deal with sin, both individually and generally. Now, I'm going to take care of the sin issue. 490 years. And I'm going to make reconciliation for iniquity. The idea of reconciliation is kafar. Kafar is an interesting word. It was used to pitch on the ark. What did the pitch do? It covered the ark. It protected the ark from the waters. It's atonement. It means atonement to cover so, in this 490 years, what is God saying? I'm going to take care of your idolatry. I'm going to finish the... I'm going to forget, take care of your sin problem. I'm going to make atonement for your sins. Now, what do you think that's referring to? Christ. The cross. What did Christ do on the cross? He died. He certainly did that, right? He certainly made possible the forgiveness of sins. He certainly made that all possible. And then it says to bring in everlasting righteousness. What's the idea of everlasting? Are we in everlasting righteousness now? Not unless you're a covenant theologian, you're not. We're still in a mess, aren't we? So this can't refer to the first... Remember we talked about two advents? So what's the first three things refer to? The first advent. What's the second three refer to? Second advent. 490 years. Now don't get too rattled yet. We'll work it out. To seal up the vision and the prophecy. What does it mean to seal up the vision and the prophecy? It means to fulfill everything I've told you about. To make a complete fulfillment. In fact, in the end time, are there going to, in the millennium, in the eternal state, is there any need for more visions and things? No, we're going to see. We're going to walk by sight, not by faith. To anoint the most holy could refer either to an eternal temple, could refer to the eternal state, it could refer to God. You can work through these, but what do you see there? God is saying in 490 years, from, from, from a starting point, it's going to take 490 years, everything is going to be fulfilled. Sin's going to be dealt with, idolatry is going to be dealt with, your sins will be covered, will be in a, 
the time of blessing, all my promises will be fulfilled, everything will be finished. 490 years. Follow what's going on here? So the question then is, when's it start? 490 years, that's great. When's it start? When's it begin? Well, let's see when it begins. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moats, but in a troubled time. Verse 25. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. All right. So we got 69 weeks here. And a split, this 69 weeks is split into two parts. It's split into 62 and 7. All right. So what's, uh, what's 7 sevens? 49, right? I'm trying to find my ink, my pens. See, you always got to come prepared here because they always steal all your markers. Got to have my own markers. Um, so what you have here, you say there's going to be a starting point. All right? This is going to be the start, whatever time period that is. And there's going to be 49 years, right? Follow? There's going to be seven sevens, 49. And then there's going to be a period of 62 sevens. All right. And it says, after that, the Messiah will be cut off. Okay, what does it mean to be cut off? Killed. And then what's going to happen? You're going to have some events. And at some point, you're going to have what? You have another seven. One more seven that needs to be dealt with. Follow what's going on here so far? You got 62 sevens, seven sevens. All right. This here, time period here, is 483 years. And you got one year left, one set of sevens left to bring it to 490. Follow? And what is he saying here? What's he saying about the first 69 weeks? Well, we have that here in verse 24. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the city and the People of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city, the sanctuary. Its end shall become with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. Okay? Real quick. We have 483 years, and the last seven years are not start from one seven over there. It's not contiguous. The first, the first, 62, the first 69 weeks are contiguous. There's still a seven left. Right, and it makes it clear here what's going on, okay? It makes it clear in the passage. All right, so what's going to happen in the first 483 years? Well, the temple, the, Jerusalem's going to be rebuilt, right, in troublesome times. Jerusalem will be rebuilt. And after that 483 years, what's going to happen? Messiah's going to be cut off. What's it mean, killed? Messiah's going to be killed after the 483 Okay, now, when's it start? Well, it says here, from the going forth to rebuild Jerusalem. All right, so that's the starting point. The, start, the clock starts when what? When the decree goes forth to build Jerusalem. That's when the clock will start. So then the question is what? When did that happen? All right, I'm glad you asked. There are three possible starting points for that, that one there. Three possible starting points. 
Um, in 445, there's the second decree of Artaxerxes. You find that in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1. Nehemiah and Ezra. Um, this is where did I miss one? Here it is. Yeah. I got two of them. Sorry, I got one ahead. The first possible starting point is the decree of Cyrus in Ezra 1, 1 through 4. But what did the decree of Cyrus allow Israel to do? Rebuild the temple. It said nothing about the walls. It said they're allowed to go back and rebuild their temple. All right. Then there's the decree of Artaxerxes in 458 B.C. And again, this allowed Israel to go back, but it did not allow them to do what? Rebuild the walls. So, so far we got them going back, rebuilding the temple, but there's no mention of rebuilding Jerusalem, the walls. However, the third decree, the decree of Artaxerxes in 445 B.C., he's the king that Nehemiah served. This is the most likely candidate, because what did he authorize Nehemiah to do? Rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, which means to rebuild Jerusalem, the city. And this occurred in 445 B.C., and we know the date. We got the date that this happened. It's somewhere in the spring of 445 B.C. Now, here's an interesting thing. If somebody's actually done this, you can go out and you can do the math on this. All right? I don't have a calculator with me. Um, but if you do this, this is pretty fascinating, by the way. I'm going to erase a little bit of this. But if you take 445 B.C., all right, the, the date, I don't have the exact date, but it's 445 B.C., okay? And then you add to that 483 times 360 days. Do the math. I think it's one, 172,280 or something like I can't remember what the... Somebody could do the math real quick if you got a little calculator. You could figure that out, all right? And then, that's days, all right? And then you can convert that to calendar days, right? How do you do that? Well, you've got to take into consideration, I'm just put this in here, the futs you've got to do. You've got to convert it to our calendar is 365 days, right? Not 360. You also got to add in the leap years, right? And then you also need to add in every 400 years, there's an additional day you've got to toss in. All right? Plus one for every 400 years, you've got an additional day. And you do the math, guess which day you wind up with? The day Jesus rode into, the day Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. To the day. What is it? 173880. I knew I was close there. 173,880. And somebody's actually done this. They actually did the math. And you got to take, you see, our calendar doesn't quite fit the, you know, the 360 calendar. So you got the days, but then you got to, those days, you got to take your 365 days a year. You got to take into consideration leap years. You got to take into consideration the 400. Every, every 400 years, you got to toss in another day. And then you got to also know that you go from 1 BC to 1 AD. You don't go to 1 to 0 to 1. You take all of that into consideration and you wind up with April 6th, A.D. 32. And what was notable about that date? That's when Christ rode into Jerusalem to present himself as Messiah. That's Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday. No. It was to the day. And remember when Christ came in, he said, if only you had known what day it was. But you didn't. You didn't. He wept over Jerusalem because they should have known the day. All the monkeying around that the Pharisees and scribes and all the religious leaders and all the legal scribes and experts did, they should have figured this one out, and they didn't. Christ said, it's to the day. And what happened after 
Christ rode into Jerusalem. What, what did Israel do? Messiah the Prince is cut off. To the day. God was accurate to the day. And um, so what does that tell you about the next seven? He hadn't messed up the first 483, right? And, and, and by the way, after the Messiah is the prince is cut off, what's going to happen? The, the people of the prince who is to come will do what? What's it say? That the prince of the people who is to come will do what? What are they going to do? Destroy the temple and the sanctuary. What happened after Christ died 40 years later? What happened? The Romans destroyed Jerusalem. That's what it said. Now notice what it said. It didn't say immediately, did it? No, it just said after the Messiah, the Prince, at some point, Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. So we know that there is a break between the clock stopped at the end of 483, and right now it's, it's waiting. There's still seven years left on the clock, but the clock's been waiting now for a good 1,900, almost 2,000 years. And I think it's interesting where it says, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city. The people of the prince who is to come, that was the first Roman Empire. Yeah. And it's the second Roman Empire that these people are coming out of. Yep. But it's just like they said. And Antichrist is descended from the Roman peoples. We know that. We'll talk about him later. I was thinking about this this, this last week in, in light of my uncle's death that there are some questions that we don't we, we want to know the answer to but if we did it'd ruin us what if you knew the exact day and hour of your death? How would it affect you? How would it affect you? Yeah. It would ruin us. If we were to know that kind of information, it would mess us up. It would really mess us up. We're not to know that. God, God says, you know, if, I, if you know that, you can't handle that knowledge. I can't give it to you. Yeah. So what we need to do is we need to prepare it at all time. And if God were to show up and say, hey, Alan, you know, I'll, I'll give you the dates if you want, I don't want to know. I don't want to know my exact, I don't want to know when I'm going to die. I don't want to know that date. Yeah. So you're saying there's still seven years left? Yes. And did that start, you're saying, when Jerusalem starts rebuilding its temple? No. That was the first... The first one start, the starting point of the 483 is when the decree went forth to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. We know that date. Okay. You're just saying we don't really know the next seven years when that starts? We know, when it's, we know the event that starts it, but we don't know when that event will occur. We're going to get to that. Okay. We know the event that starts it. What's the event that starts it? Yeah, that's coming up here. We know what starts the next seven years, but we don't know when that starts. We do know certain events have to take place prior to that last event. We see yeah. And when you look at those, they've pretty much been taken care of. So there's nothing to prevent the event that starts the next seven years. And you're saying the last, when the 490 years are up, you're saying that's when it's right? That's, the, that's when the millennium begins. That's the beginning of the millennium, the kingdom that Israel has been promised. That's, that's the promised kingdom. That's what he's saying here. 490 years are going to occur between now and the beginning of the kingdom, the, the messianic kingdom. And we, not, and we know the first 483, and the first 483 happened exactly as has been laid out. And this is all in reference to Israel. Israel. Right. And that's a good point. 
God, this is, this is the calendar for Israel, not for humanity. All right? God's prophecies and, and the concept of the kingdom, all that, revolve around the promises he made to Israel. Now, as Gentiles, we, are, we partake of those blessings, right? But those blessings were never given to us, personally, as a people. They were given to God's people, the Israelites. But we still share in that. And that's what Romans 11 says, that Israel, because of their unbelief, God set them aside so that he could display blessings to us as Gentiles. But there's coming a day in which God will once again turn to his people Israel and fulfill all the promises. Because you've still got a seven-year period of time left to finish everything up. Yes. Absolutely. Right. Mm -hmm. But I mean, it's, it's not just a New Testament concept that what happens to Israel is going to affect the nations, but this is something that was preordained right. and even spoken of. And the problem is that Israel saw themselves as the sole beneficiaries of God's promises. They did not see themselves as being a light to the Gentiles. And because of that, God set them aside. Because of their unbelief. Four eighty three and four ninety that is the time of the Gentiles. Yeah. And and we and we understand that from other we're gonna we're we're building the picture here. And what we're doing now is we're giving the this various backbone of the, the superstructure and we're gonna fill in pieces now next week and further on as we fill this out. But this, this the important thing to understand with Daniel 9 here is you've got this 483 year period of time. You have the Messiah, the Prince, cut off. You have the destruction of the temple. You have the destruction of Israel. But then as you leap forward in time look what it says in verse 27. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for what? One week. One week. Who's the he here? Well, in, in biblical interpretation, if you see a he, how do you determine who he is? You start working back. So you work back in the text, who's the he? Well, you find the he refers to the prince who will come. Mm -hmm. Who's the prince that will come? Well, he's not specifically defined here in this text. But in Matthew 24, we find that the prince that is to come is somebody we know as the Antichrist. The instead of Christ. You can tell, I don't know about every version, but my version makes a distinction between verse 25's capital P and verse 26's small P. Right. So you know this is a prophetic construct, common. You've got Messiah the prince, but then you've got the prince who will come. Two different beings to different people. So who's the prince who will come? Well, that's the antichrist, the instead of Christ. And remember, we said anti could refer to either against or instead of. How does antichrist pass himself off to Israel? He is the Messiah. He passes himself off as the promised Messiah. And Israel buys it. And in fact, what Israel does is they make a treaty with many, it says here, he's to make a strong covenant with many for one week. One period of seven. So, what is the event then that starts this last seven years? The covenant, the treaty. Now, some have said, well, the rapture is what starts it. No, the rapture does not start the clock. 
Does the rapture probably occur before that time? Well, yeah, but it, that's not what starts the prophetic clock. The prophetic clock, according to Daniel, starts when Antichrist makes a treaty with Israel and guarantees them safety for a period of seven years. A seven-year treaty. No. And I, and I think there's a period of, you know, a few days or weeks or maybe a couple of months or so between the rapture and the established and Antichrist making that treaty. Because I don't think we as a church are going to know who the Antichrist is. He's going to rise out of nowhere and become a world leader. I don't think we'll know who he is as a church. He might be alive today, but we don't know who he is. He's going to be revealed after. And I believe you can make the case he's revealed after we're taken out. That's when the Antichrist is revealed for who he is. But what is he going to do? He's going to make a treaty with Israel. And then it says what's going to happen as he makes this treaty. He's going to make a strong treaty and for half the week he shall strong, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sac, sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. What's that saying is what's going to happen three and a half years in? What's he going to do? He's going to break the treaty. Now, this is what we have in Daniel. So now, if all you had was Daniel and you read that, you'd say, well, okay, I got some big picture here. There's going to be 490 years. 483 years is going to happen. After 483, we have the Messiah who's going to come. He's going to be cut off. Doesn't say why or what. It's just going to be cut off. Then the people of the prince who's going to come is going to destroy the city. And then this coming prince who's going to come is going to make a treaty with Israel for one week. And halfway through, he's going to break his treaty. That's what you would know. Why are you saying halfway through? Where are you getting that? Okay. This text here is maybe not as clear as some of the other text, but it says he's going to make the treaty with many for one week, and then in the middle of the week, what is he going to do? He's going to set up what we call an abomination of desolation. Uh, the idea there is he's going to um, desecrate the temple. Now, if you go to Matthew 24, which we're going to do maybe next week or the week after, go to Matthew 24, it spells this out in greater detail. All right, in Matthew 24. No, go ahead. No. Three, halfway through the last week. So if you go halfway through the last week, how long is that? Three and a half years. So the midpoint of the tribulation. That, that's what we're doing here. One year. Yeah, yeah. One week, one seven. There's one seven left. All right. So we have a seven year period of time here. And then halfway through, or three and a half in, we're going to have this event where Antichrist is going to break the treaty with Israel. He's going to break the treaty. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, no, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, it says he's going to set himself up as God in the temple to be worshipped. And he's going to violate the treaty. And then in Matthew 24, it says that he's going to go after the people of Israel. And in, in Revelation 12, it even spells this out further, where it says he's going to go to make war with the remnant of the Israelites for how long? 42 months. 42 months would equate to what? That period of time right there. This is the 42 months of Revelation chapter 12. I mean, yeah. No, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. So this is this is the 42 months of Revelation 12. Now again, what are we doing here? You say, well, you know, this sort of doesn't quite hang all the way together for me yet. It will hang together when we're done. Because what we got, remember we said that when it comes to this, God did not give us one spot where it gives the full blow-by-blow -blow chronology. You got to piece it together from three or four passages. But 
all of the passages, if you take all of the passages, if you take Matthew 24, here's what you do. You take Daniel 9, you take Daniel 2, you take Matthew 24, you take Revelation 12, you take 2 Thessalonians 2, you put them on a table and you come up with a scenario that makes them all fit together and this is what you wind up with. Follow? Daniel 9 to Matthew 24, 1 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians 2 and Revelation 12 and 13. And when you put them all together, this is the, they, they form this consistent picture here. They all, all of the pieces fit together. That's what you're trying to do, is fit all of the pieces together. All right, so what's Antichrist going to do, according to Daniel here? Well, he's going to make this treaty with Israel. Partway through, for whatever and we can speculate on what events cause that, he's going to break his treaty. He's going to set himself up as God. And when he does that, he's going to go after Israel to destroy Israel and all the believers that he can. According to Revelation chapter 12, he's going to go after the, the, child, the, the woman that bore the man-child. Well, who's the woman that bore the man-child? Israel bore the Messiah. He's going to go after that, that woman to destroy Israel. And for 42 months... He's going to be given power to wreak havoc. But he's not going to succeed. In the end, Christ is going to come back and destroy him and his armies. He doesn't win. And when Christ comes back and destroys his army, what does Christ then immediately set up? The millennial kingdom begins. That's when he sets up the millennial kingdom. All right? Um, if you look at Revel let's look at Daniel 12 here. Well, let's, no, let's do this first. Let's look at Daniel 2. Now, I didn't, I didn't do this as a separate class, but so you're going to get the 5,000-foot um, overview here. <laughs> all right? We're not going to go all the way down. We're going to get the 5,000-foot overview. Okay? We got Nebuchadnezzar's vision. And this also corresponds to Daniel 7 in which in Daniel 7, Daniel sees the world empires from the view of God, and Daniel 2 from the view of man. But let's look at what happens in Daniel chapter 2. In Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And uh, he wants the interpretation of this dream, because in those days, um, the thought was if the king has a dream that really troubles him, then the gods are trying to communicate some truth. Mm -hmm. That's the whole idea of the king having a dream. But Nebuchadnezzar is not an idiot because he knows that if he gives them the dream, what's the wise men going to do? They're going to spin something. So how does he know that they actually have the right answer? What can he do to make sure they give him the right answer? Well, you tell me the dream too and give me the answer, then I know that you're telling me what God said. And of course, that was unheard of. The magicians say, well, nobody's ever done that. And Nebuchadnezzar says, well, I can do it and I'm going to do it. And if you don't give me the dream, I'm going to kill you and all your family. So there. I mean, he was a pretty stubborn bugger. But he wanted to make sure that, yeah, he had the right interpretation. So what does Daniel and his friends do? Well, they go and they pray. And what does God deliver to Daniel? The dream and the interpretation, both. So Daniel comes into the king. And he says, here's what you see. You saw a great statue, a great image. And... Uh, the top of the image, the head, was made out of pure gold. And then you have the arms and the chest were made out of silver. The thighs and the belly were made out of brass. And then the legs were made of iron. And the toes were part iron and part clay. And you watched and wondered at this thing until a stone was cut out of a mountain. Mm -hmm. And that stone came down and smashed the image, ground it up. The dust went blew all away, and that stone became a great mountain that filled the whole earth. There's your dream. Now, of course, Nebuchadnezzar's jaw is about hitting the floor at this time because that's exactly what he dreamed. So, what is, so when Daniel gives the interpretation, what does he believe? Well, you know, if you can tell me the dream, you can tell me the interpretation. And so what does Daniel say? Well, he says, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. And he basically tells Nebuchadnezzar, what you were doing is before you went to bed, you were dreaming about, well, what's going to happen when I'm gone? What's, gonna, what's the history going to be? So God gave you a vision of what the history of the world is going to be for a period of time. 
So what do you have? You have Nebuchadnezzar as the head of gold. This is Babylon. And he said, God has given you control over all peoples. You're the head of gold. And how long did Babylon last? Well, Babylon lasted from about 612. That's when they defeated the Egyptians at the Battle of Carchemish till 580, 530, excuse me, about 538-6 time frame. 538, they began to disintegrate. By 536, they were gone. They're the head of gold. They're the first empire, the Gentile world power. Now, what is true about this? Well, this is the times of the Gentiles. And later on, it talks about the times of the Gentiles. What is that? Well, that's the time that the Gentiles occupy Israel. Israel is no longer a nation. When did Israel cease becoming a nation? 606 B.C. When did they start up again? 1948. So there, he says, Nebuchadnezzar, you're the head of gold. And then he says, after you is going to come another kingdom. We know that historically as the Medo-Persian Empire. And when did they come to power? They came to power about 530, about 538. And they lasted till right around 333 B.C. They were the next world empire. And in fact, in Daniel chapter 8, 9, and 10, and 11, he gives, the, he gives the name of this empire. We know what this empire is. And by the way, Daniel knew what it was because Daniel lived to that time, right? He lived to the time that the Medo-Persian Empire took over. And in Daniel 7, the Medo-Persian Empire is depicted as a bear raised up on one side. The Medo part was stronger than the Persian part. And then there's another empire, the, the bronze. Who's that? Well, that's the Greek Empire. And the Greek Empire lasted from 333 till somewhere around B.C. 70, give or take, is when the, the Greek Empire ran its course. Then after that, we had the Roman Empire. They're the legs of iron, Roman. And they lasted from 70, and they never were conquered, did, were they? They just sort of like went away. So what's going to happen in the last times? By the way, what, what empire destroyed the city? Romans. All right, the power of the people, the prince that will come. So he's part of that. Since that never disintegrated, what's going to happen in the end times? There's going to be some revival of the Roman Empire. How does that look? I don't know how that looks, but there's going to be a revival of it. And then what's going to happen in the end time? Well, we have the, the end, the last one, which are the toes, the end time. And it's going to be partly strong and partly weak. There's going to be a strength and a weakness to it. All right? And that's going to be, we don't know when. So what did God give Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 2? He gave him a bird's eye view of the empires that are going to exist during this time. What do we have? We have Babylon. Now Babylon was not part of the 490 years, right? Because it was off the scene before it started. But the Medo-Persian Empire and the Greek Empire and the Roman Empire are all part of this. And when you look at Daniel 7, how does Daniel 7 depict these empires? Well, the head of gold, Babylon, is seen as a lion. That was their animal, by the way. You see the lion gate at uh, the um, museum in London. Then you have the Medo-Persian Empire. They are seen as a bear. The Greek Empire is seen as a leopard. What do you know about a leopard? It's fast. They conquered very quickly. And then you have Rome, which is this diverse beast that doesn't look like anything he's ever seen. That's extremely violent. And then you have the end time empire. What's God doing here? God's given us a 20,000 foot view of the events. Now what we're going to do next week is we will, we will focus in on some additional passage to help us to start filling this out a little bit. Right now... We have the framework, but what do we have to see? We have to see, does this framework hold up to other passages in the Scripture? When I start looking at Matthew 24, when I start looking at Revelation 12 and that, does my framework stay intact, or do I have to 
change some things. And we're going to start looking at that next week. Okay? All right, well, let's pray. We're out of time. Father, thank you for this day you've granted. Help us to ponder these truths. Thank you that you've given us the, the bird's eye view and that we know that you are in charge. And we can rest assured in that, knowing that nothing's going to happen that you don't allow. Thank you for choosing, choosing us as your people. And may we love you and honor you as we should. In Christ's name, amen. amen.